I'm a little concerned maybe of a crush on Tom Cruise. Oh, he's a handsome fella in the 80s, Carla. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can't deny it. Yeah, Um, I feel like I can. Really? You don't? (laughs) Hold on a minute. You don't think Tom Cruise, 1980s Tom Cruise, if if he had a more modern looking haircut, would be a very handsome guy? I mean, okay, no. Welcome to Pennies and Popcorn, the show about real money lessons from the world of TV and movies. With your hosts, Carla Cash and Robert Davidson, a couple of personal finance geeks and movie lovers. Hey, Carla. Today we're doing another Tom Cruise movie. I'm so excited. Tom Cruise is my favorite actor of all time. Wait. No, he's definitely not. He's actually one of my least favorite actors, but we're doing like a little mini series on him because he was in so many movies in the 80s and 90s that are like all about money. That's right. Today we're doing Cocktail. This is a movie I hadn't seen before. I really didn't know that much about. I'd heard it was, you know, I'd heard of it, right? It was relatively famous. I was blown away by how bad this movie was. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I also felt similarly. I had seen it before, but it was a long time ago. And the only thing I remembered about it is that it was like all about money. Like the whole plot centers around cash and who's got more of it than others. Uh, You're right. It is definitely a money-centric movie, but holy moly, is it terrible. Yeah. Don't... We, we recommend going and rewatching these old nostalgic films routinely on this show. Don't go watch Cocktail. It's not worth your time. Yeah. I mean, if you're one of those people who really enjoys seeing like supremely bad acting and kind of laughing at it, you might get a kick out of it. And I'm not alone in that opinion. This movie is listed on the Razzie Awards 100 most, quote, enjoyably bad films of all time. So it's, you know, it came out in 1988. It has withstood a lot of really, really bad movies coming out since then. But the folks who run the Razzie Awards are still in agreement that Cocktail belongs on that list. So, I mean, the public, when it came out, enjoyed it. I think it had grossed well over $150 million at the box office. So it was a profitable venture for the production studio. But man, the critics... I hadn't read any of their reviews until after I watched it, and I was glad to see that the critics hated it almost as much as I did. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty terrible. I did see a quote by Tom Cruise where he acknowledged that it was not, quote, his crowning jewel. <laughs> what do you think his crowning jewel is? Gosh, I don't know. My whole experience of Tom Cruise movies is so colored by how crazy of a human being he is now, so... I don't feel like I really have a favorite Tom Cruise movie. Jerry Maguire probably comes close for me. I I hate it a lot less than most of his other movies. I thought you really liked all of the Mission Impossible films. Oh, yeah. Super into that. Red light, green light. And then he pushes what? the gum together. No, Mission Impossible <laughs> 1. All I think of when you say red light, green light is Squid Game. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. No, I think in the first Mission Impossible, they had some explosive gum looking thing where one end was red, one end was green. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Another Tom Cruise movie that if I watch now, I would probably be a bit disappointed. Yeah, yeah. He's just not my favorite actor and the kind of movies he does are not my favorite. But I have to say, I'm really excited to cover this film today because it's just absolutely cram packed full of just crazy money stuff. So it's going to be really fun to dig into it. So this movie's from 1988. 
kind of sucks. So people probably haven't seen it time after time. You want to give time everyone a little... Time after time. That's a good 80s song. It was not in the soundtrack of this movie, <laughs> to my recollection. But no. do you want to give people a little bit of background color about what's going on in this movie? Give it some context? Yeah. So Tom Cruise is our hero in the film, and he has just gotten out of the military. He plays, he plays a character named Brian Flanagan. Mm-hmm. And young Flanagan is kind of trying to figure out what his next steps in life are going to be. He's officially out of the military. We don't know how long he was in it. We don't get a good read on what his age is, but he's definitely somewhere in his like mid-20s, I would say. And he's just trying to figure things out, trying to decide what kind of work he wants to do. The one thing we know about him for sure is that he is absolutely obsessed with getting rich. He's been telling everyone in his life he's going to make a million bucks. Mm -hmm. And he reads constantly all these sort of self-improvement books and how to run a business kind of books uh, that we see throughout the film. So he is very fixated on building, building wealth. Yeah. And the whole movie is basically the story of him trying to get there and some of the challenges that he faces along the way. And so I think that's enough background. It's a Tom Cruise movie. You get it. You you haven't seen it, but you kind of have. I will say my favorite thing about this movie is Elizabeth Shue. She uh, won a place in my heart with her role in The Karate Kid, and I've liked her ever since. I didn't know she was in that, but when I saw her in the movie, I was like, oh, it's the girl from Back to the Future, like the new girlfriend for Marty McFly in the second and third one. Yeah, she was their replacement, Jennifer, I think, in the sequels. But anyway, I really like Elizabeth Shue. And I'm glad that she got this part of the movie. I think there were a lot of actresses vying for it. So good on you, Elizabeth. Anyway, I think we can go ahead and jump into our very first clip with that background in mind, which um, is kind of a montage of the reactions that Tom Cruise is getting as he is applying for jobs that he thinks will help him reach his goal of becoming a wealthy, wealthy man. I've always wanted to work on Wall Street. I read the journal. I know what's going on today and I'm willing to do whatever it takes to succeed. I appreciate that, Flanagan, but all our professionals have college degrees. Catch on pretty quick. You're wasting your time. Just forget the street. No. We're not interested. Guy like you, advertising. I have a feel for advertising. I mean, I can look at an ad and tell you what's wrong with it. Mr. Flanagan, we need solid credentials. No, a marketing degree is a prerequisite. Try the networks. In the Army, I spent a lot of time in communications. I think I can help you. Well, we need somebody who can hit the ground running. Sorry. Maybe in... Six or eight months, but you should pursue other avenues. Maybe you should re-enlist. I believe in positive thinking. Never quit. Never say die. I want to be part of the team. So, what do you think? Well, your resume is completely inadequate. I'm willing to start at the bottom. You're aiming too high. I'll do anything. You don't have enough experience. No, I need a job. We value education. We require a degree. You should go to college. Well, that's a heck of a montage. You know, it's funny, we just did The Firm, uh-huh. and he had a montage of trying to get jobs there, and it went a lot differently. It did. He could not beat employers away with a stick in the movie The Firm, and now he can't get anybody to offer him a job. I think Mitchell McDear was in a way better hiring position than Brian Flanagan. Yeah, yeah, Mitchell McDear had it going on. Made some bad choices, but definitely in a far better position to gain employment. So the theme I was hearing from all these people seemed like they were suggesting that maybe his resume wasn't quite good enough and that in particular, his formal education wasn't what they were looking for. Yeah, that is the theme of this clip, right? 
go to college. That's the last thing that we hear. So I think these people are probably telling him the right thing for these particular jobs that he wants to apply for. So we hear him trying to get a job on Wall Street. From everything that I have ever understood, and based on some research that I did for this episode specifically, I think he's just completely barking up the wrong tree there. It is a prerequisite to have at least a bachelor's degree in finance or accounting or something along those lines to get a job on Wall Street. A lot of folks who get these kind of investment banking jobs have an advanced degree, some kind of graduate program under their belt. Is that true even today, like 34 years later? I I would imagine on Wall Street for sure, but what about in the advertising space? Well, I'm talking about in, oh, in the advertising space as a very different story. It it seemed as though he was trying to, like he wanted to start Wall Street, that wasn't going to work. Someone said, you have a, you seem like more of an advertising guy. He went to advertising. They said, no, you're not that either. Yeah, I think it was probably good advice, whoever told him on Wall Street that he should check out advertising, because at least in today's world, you do not have to have a degree in marketing or communications or anything along those lines to get a job in advertising. Now, does it help, especially if you're trying to go to some of these top firms? Of course it does, but you could get your foot in the door for sure doing some of these jobs in the advertising arena, especially these days with digital marketing. I mean, I think a lot of these places want like a 17-year-old kid, right? Like somebody who's got their finger on the pulse of what's young and what's hip. I have to imagine the companies, you know, their clients who are hiring them aren't exactly hoping to be in a meeting with somebody who can't rent a car without paying an extra fee. But maybe I'm wrong. (laughs) Yeah, I just don't know from personal experience. I've never been in the advertising arena But it does strike me as something that is very much worth exploring from him. Now, it does seem like he's shooting for like the top of the top at the kind of firm where they probably would prefer some kind of a college degree. But I think he should probably like go a few rungs down the ladder and just see what sticks. Well, I think good for him, right? He's just left the military. He's looking for a job in the private sector. He thinks he's qualified. He has the confidence. He's got the look of Tom Cruise and the charisma that goes along with it, right? I'm, I'm a little concerned maybe of a crush on Tom Cruise. Oh, he's a handsome fella in the 80s, Carla. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't deny it. Yeah, um, I feel like I can. Really? You don't? Okay, cool, hold on a minute. You don't think Tom Cruise, 1980s Tom Cruise, if he, if he had a more modern looking haircut, would be a very handsome guy? I mean, okay, no, I really just, I can't unsee everything that I know about his personality. And okay, just, you're just lying. Yeah, you're just lying. I can't unsee it. It's just there. Also, I mean, he does, he's got that middle tooth. Yes, I was going to say, if you haven't Googled this, you have to go Google this immediately. <laughs> like, stop the podcast and go, look, Tom Cruise's teeth are very, very strange. Instead of having, like, your two middle teeth sort of meet in the middle like most people has, he, he just has one very large tooth directly in the middle of his face, like perfectly underneath his nose. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. So it's a thing. Go Google it. Anyway. You're so harsh. Anyway. <laughs> so back to the money stuff. <laughs> well, Tom Cruise, I think uh, the, Brian Flanagan, he's got all this confidence and charisma. People seem to like him. It's As we learn uh, in his role as a bartender, it certainly is a, a wonderful asset that he has. And I think he could get hired for a job that he's underqualified for simply due to his personality. So I say good on him for trying to go find out what the market's about. So many people are unwilling to get out there and face the rejection uh, that they they don't go after things that 
maybe nobody's qualified for, but they got to pick somebody and you might be the best of the lot. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, look, it takes what a few months at the very most to do a really thorough job search and apply to a bunch of places. Just put your hat in the ring and see what happens. And if he can save himself, you know, four years of not having to go to school and being able to earn a good salary instead, that's a really powerful thing to start yourself off in life. So I think it's great that he's doing this, but I do think he's also in a fabulous position to go to college if he wants to. And here's why he's coming out of the military. He could easily take advantage of the GI bill. So the GI bill is kind of amazing for anybody who's on active duty for at least 36 months, three years. They don't have to be consecutive either. You, you can qualify for up to 36 months of college. So if you're doing a traditional four-year program, that's covers your entire program, right? You're in school for about nine months out of the year for a solid four years. That's enough for most people to get a college degree. So that is pretty amazing. There are some limitations on it. It will only cover up to a little over $26,000 a year if you are going to a private school, which given college tuition skyrocketing as much as it has, will not cover the whole thing in a lot of places. But if you're going somewhere public and it's in-state tuition, you're going to get your entire college paid for. That's really, really powerful. And he's got that presumably just sitting there at his fingertips. So I don't know why he's not taking advantage of it. Also, the GI Bill doesn't just pay for the actual tuition. You get a small stipend for things like books and supplies and even your housing expenses. So it's a really, really powerful program that I think veterans should all consider very, very seriously. I would imagine that people leaving the military today are well aware of that benefit. I sure hope so. But man, that's, I imagine that the average, you know, public citizen who's never served is unaware of it. I'm certainly not deep in the weeds on the details, but that sounds really incredible. Yeah, I think it is really incredible. And it's probably not a bad trade-off for a lot of folks um, who just otherwise couldn't afford to go to college or don't want to start their life with, you know, $100,000 in debt to consider this if there's somebody who feels like the military might be a decent fit for them. So it's, it's a powerful program that we have for our veterans, and I think it's just fantastic. Fun fact, do you know what GI stands for? Gastrointestinal? (laughs) So apparently it originally stood for galvanized iron because that was something that the military used a lot. And then it slowly morphed and it started to stand for either ground infantry or government issue. And then it just became like the GI Joe became a thing. And now we all just use GI to refer to like anything military related. Wow. I I never thought about it. I never realized I didn't know anything about that, but yeah. Yeah, isn't that crazy? I, just, I was looking at the GI Bill and I was like, what What does GI stand for? Anyway, now we know. Wow. Okay, so Brian Flanagan here probably should go to school. And, and to be fair, he looks like he's taking some business classes at a, a school in New York City. It's not, it doesn't seem like it's a four-year program, but hopefully the GI Bill is at least paying for it. And somebody in his position who really has these dreams of getting into big business should probably go through a formal program if it's going to be substantially subsidized by the government. But, Carla, I am a lover of education, and I think I've talked about this some on the podcast before. 
I am not a lover of our approach in the world today of making people think that college is the only way forward. And I worry that we try to suggest to folks who didn't do particularly well in their first 13 years of school, that the path to success is more school that they're not that excited to go to, that they're not going to work that hard at. It feels like a distraction. By the way, they're going to take on a lot of debt to go do it. They may not complete it. The numbers of people who start college but don't finish are staggering. If you're one of those people who wasn't that great at school beforehand, you're going to end up going likely to a community college. will take you a few years before going on to a four-year program. You can transfer over most of your credits, which is great. But sometimes people are doing that while working at the same time. And what was going to be a two plus two more years turns into like a six or seven year program if they even finish. It is a massive gamble. And I feel like so many people enter it without a particular plan. Brian Flanagan seems like he has a plan, totally reasonable. But I hate the fact that all those people are saying, college, college, you need to go to college. (laughs) I I don't buy it. Well, I don't hate the fact that these particular people are saying it because he is applying for a job that requires a college degree and he doesn't have one. So it makes total sense in this context for these people to say, look, you want to do what I do? This is a prerequisite. I mean, you can't waltz into a law firm and say, you know, I read the bar journals. I know what's going on in the world. (laughs) Just hire me. I'm a quick learner. They're just going to look at you and be like, it's against the law. We're lawyers. We know you have to go to law school and pass the bar exam if you want to practice law. Not all of the jobs that he's looking for and that he's applying for are quite that restrictive as like law or medicine or accounting or engineering, but some of them are. Investment banking, I think, is. So he's he hasn't bought his ticket to the show and he wants to go to the show anyway. I think it makes total sense for these people to look at him and say, go buy the ticket first. We can't let you in the door. Yeah, it's totally fine. And he should go to school and and many people should. I shouldn't hate on it the way that I do. Okay, so we have Brian Flanagan here and he doesn't get any of these jobs. He's rejected. He's dejected. And he's walking down New York City streets and he sees a bar with a sign in the window that says help wanted. He goes in and he gets a job. Uh, We later learn that this bar is TGI Fridays. (laughs) Or maybe maybe we knew immediately, but we see the sign at some point outside yeah. that he's working at a TGI Fridays, which, I mean, I guess good for him. I always think of that as more of a restaurant than a bar. So it seems kind of odd that the bar is like such a major part of the establishment. When it's starring but... Tom Cruise, the bar like becomes a little bit more mm. at the you know, center stage. Yeah, again, concerned about this crush on Tom Cruise. <laughs> but yeah, he is working at this bar and he and this guy, Doug Coughlin, who is his buddy, who's sort of his mentor. He teaches him how to bartend. Yeah, they do, um, I think it's called flare bartending, right? That kind of stereotypical thing you think of where they're like twirling the bottles around. And I just saw them making a huge mess. That's what I saw. They were making a mess. I mean, the whole thing just feels like a gender role reversal for Coyote Ugly. They're just like dancing and putting on a big show um, on the bar. So... Yeah, that's that's what he's doing for a living, right? He's like dancing and kind of shaking his moneymaker and pouring drinks for people. So he seems to be having fun with it, but he really wants to open his own bar someday. And so does Doug. And they become friends and decide that this is something they would love to do together someday. But starting your own bar is not something you can just do out of the clear blue sky. It requires a lot of work. It requires some upfront investment. Yeah. Real estate in New York isn't exactly free. Very true. 
So they are constantly on the hunt for people who will invest and give them the upfront money that they need to start the bar. And then Tom Cruise meets a girl who kind of offers him a potentially alternative way for them to earn the money that they need to start a bar. Now, what I have found is if we find the right location, do our own renovation, we can start it up for as little as 75,000 cash. Ah, which the tooth fairy will deliver to our doorstep. Hmm? No, man. Which we make in Jamaica, man. Oh, God, Brian. <laughs> like that. Mm. I was down there last month doing a shoot, and I met this bartender who makes three to $400 a day. A day? Woo! And he didn't have any of the talent of you guys. Yeah, sure man. not. Winter in the tropics, spring in New York. Jet set bartenders, eh? So we can live for peanuts down there. There are no taxes. Mm. Cash off the books. Two, maybe three seasons, and we are in business. So you want to wait three years? As I've told you, New York is where the angels are. Oh, come on. Doug. This is this is a real opportunity. Seems like the tooth fairy they're talking about is a little, has stepped it up a little bit um, from when I was a kid. And yeah. 1988, that was about the time when the tooth fairy was coming to me. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, man, we need their tooth fairy. She sounds pretty kick-ass. Was this before Dwayne the Rock Johnson became the tooth fairy? Oh, my God, I don't know. <laughs> anyway was that a movie uh probably it feels like something the rock would have done okay so they are talking about going down to jamaica because apparently they can make three to four hundred dollars a day doing their bartending routine down there presumably that's going to come you know almost entirely from tips right so that does sound like a pretty incredible opportunity if that really is the case and something that is definitely worth exploring for them. Yeah, if so maybe $300 a day, $400 a day is achievable even at only $200 a day with the two of them. That's you're talking about $100,000 a year that they'd be able to to make and it sounds like they can live for peanuts. Yeah. Yeah, well, so let's walk through some of the math on that. So they're talking about doing it seasonally, which one seems kind of wrongheaded to me because a lot of people take vacations in the summertime too. Oh yeah, Jamaica's yeah. is Jamaica popular year round? Yeah, I mean I think the climate down there is fairly consistent all year. So there's people, that hurricane season. There, that's true, but of the vast majority of the time, it's a lovely place to be, right? So I think they're kind of missing the boat if they're thinking about just doing it for like a few months out of the year. If they were to do this. 365 days a year hopefully they take off like the fourth of july or yeah you know yeah no that's true indigenous so people stay somewhere. let's let's say that they're down there working 250 days a year okay that gives them plenty of time off so 350 dollars. let's cut cut it in half right he's saying three to four hundred so we'll call it 350 350 times 250 days a year is eighty seven thousand dollars over the course of those 250 days or 365 if they take time off. If they both do it, we get to times that by two. So we're looking at $175,000. I mean, if they only need $75,000, they could do this for a year and then go, surely they can live on the $100,000, no problem. Yeah, it just seems wild to me that they're not sitting down and doing some math. I think this is such an important lesson for people to learn, right? Like just sit down and do some very, very basic multiplication Division, like 
these are the things that can actually change your life if you will just sit down and take the five or so minutes that it takes to to work this math out. I mean, they did say they could do it for two to three seasons and and pull it off. What what I what troubles me here is that the money they're talking about making relative to the cost of living there seems out of balance. And if that's the case, how long can this opportunity really last? That's true. It does sound a little bit too good to be true. I mean, I understand it's a very real phenomenon that you get a bunch of wealthy people in party vacation mode. They are letting the money flow like water, right? So it makes a lot of sense to me that they could take advantage of that kind of scenario. But wouldn't there be competition that would just drive prices down? Yeah, you would sure think so, right? I mean, tipping, there's really no competition for tipping, right? But there's competition for the bars, right? Wouldn't they make more of them and then therefore you'd have fewer customers and therefore fewer tips? Yes, I strongly agree with that assessment. It does feel a little bit too good to be true. Now, it is possible that they're just kind of getting in early before people have really realized that this is such a cash cow. If only people knew that Jamaica was in the tropics before <laughs> the filming of Cocktail. Uh, I mean, it, I mean, yeah, this this movie put Jamaica on the map, clearly. Um, but I, I, So let's do a slightly different scenario of math. If they're making only $200 a day in tips and they're working 250 days a year, that's still $50,000 per person. So between the two of them, they could reach their goal within a year. So it does feel like they should be sitting down and doing some basic math to figure this out. So as you and I were watching this, we're sort of wondering about the math here and what their real goal is, right? They both want to open this club together, this bar. Why can't they do that in Jamaica and just do it for real? Like, why not do that? Forever. This seems like super lucrative. It sounds like a place that they're excited to be. They're going to make plenty of money. Yeah. What's, I don't get the drawback. Yeah, I don't either. And let me put some of these numbers that we're rattling off in perspective for you. We're talking about $1988. So in today's dollars, it's actually way more, right? So we talked about the fact that they have the ability to earn up to $175,000 between the two of them. In today's dollars, that's like $439,000. So we're talking serious money that the two of them could be making. They wouldn't have to do that very long to just be set up for life. Exactly. Like who cares about a business? They're just freaking set. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, it would be a perfect way for somebody to achieve fire, right? Financial independence, where they have the option to retire early in very, very short order. And if their dream is bartending, if that's what they love to do, then they could set themselves up to be bartender fi right this is like (laughs) barista fi where you have this idea that you're going to just work a little to kind of cover some expenses maybe all of your expenses maybe just some of them but you've got this huge pile of money that's giving you this like crazy safety net in life and you don't have to worry about saving ever again so they would be at that point in very short order right so yeah it seems like they could have a fabulous life and this guy, Doug Coughlin, is just totally dismissing the possibility of even thinking about doing anything other than like finding the angel investor. That's what I want to do. Well, maybe he was having some scrutiny on Tom Cruise's statement that there's no taxes. I mean, that is super shifty and shady. So international taxation is a, an extremely complicated area of the law. But Broadly speaking, if you are an American citizen and you go and you work outside the United States, you are still taxed 
by the United States on your worldwide income. So there are some exceptions and you can get like foreign tax credits for amounts that you pay to foreign governments in some scenarios, not all. But the bottom line is there's a very good chance that these guys would have been having to pay tax to the United States. I don't know about Jamaica, but probably them too. So it's a, it, this is not a tax-free situation. And if you're planning on getting your business seed money with money that you've like basically cheated the IRS out of, that seems like an awfully shaky foundation to build your future and your business on. You're right, Carla. The tax thing is crazy. I don't know what they're talking about, but you know, it's the 1980s. They don't have the internet to go look this stuff up. I suppose. um, What I think is kind of funny, though, is Doug's obsession with these angels, right? I think at one point in the beginning of the movie, he says something like, within one square mile of here, or within a mile of here in all directions, there's the largest concentration of wealth in the entire world or something like that. And he has this idea that by serving people, you know, at TGI Fridays, <laughs> they're going to have all of these gazillionaires walking in the door and see how just awesome they are and give them the seed money to go start their business. And I just, I don't get it. I completely agree. I think it's very unrealistic to expect that just because they're good at flair bartending, that somebody's going to walk in and be like, here's $75,000 for you to start your own bar, right? In fact, we see in the movie, there is a guy who sees them performing at TGI Fridays and is like, hey, you guys are great. You know what I want from you? I want you to come work at my bar. And that feels very realistic, right? They are good at what they do. They bring in customers. They make customers happy. But why would anybody be like, I'm going to give you the money to start your own bar versus why don't you come work for me as as a bartender in a different place? So, yeah, I don't know why they're expecting some angel to come in and give them a bunch of money that they haven't demonstrated any ability to do something valuable with. I'm sure this sort of thing happens, but I think the odds of it are just really, really small. And I think their Jamaica idea is a good one. So guess what happens in the movie? Brian Flanagan, you know, Tom Cruise, he goes down to Jamaica and he starts to bartend and he seems like he's doing really well there. He's successful. He's meeting people. Seems like he's having a good time. He and Doug had a falling out, of course, and Brian was down there by himself doing his thing. And our next clip is a interaction between Tom Cruise's character and uh, a girl he has a thing with. Elizabeth Shue. Yes. And they're <laughs> just talking about, he's still obsessed with money and trying to go make it big. Yeah. And they're sort of looking at all these everyday objects around them and pondering that there must be some millionaire who's invented all of these things. What about these plastic things at the end of these laces? Mm. It's probably got one of those weird names, too, like a Lugelbinder or something. Lugelbinder, right. (laughs) We sit here, and we're surrounded by millionaires. You rack your brains day and night to try to come up with a money-making scheme, and some guy corners the Flugelbinder market. Aw, poor baby, he's frustrated. You get a bar job to keep your days free for your real gig. After work, you're so charged up, have a few drinks, you know, hey, it's party time. Days get shorter and shorter, nights longer and longer. Before you know it, your life is just one long night with a few comatose daylight hours. Your flugelbinder is out there waiting to be discovered. Waiting. You think so? I do. Carla, what's your flugelbinder? (laughs) Okay, I don't have a flugelbinder in mind, but... 
the little plastic thing or metal thing or whatever material it is at the end of his shoelace is not called a flugel binder. That's false. I watched a movie about this. <laughs> it's called an aglet, which is some sort of derivation from the French word for needle, which makes sense. And it was invented, at least supposedly, there's actually stuff on the internet suggesting that it probably went back a really, really long way, which would make sense. But the guy who really gets all the credit for it is a man named Harvey Kennedy, who really popularized the idea. Is this what made the Kennedys so wealthy? (laughs) I don't think it was any relation, but maybe, I don't know. Anyway, um, he did this in the 1790s. So this is quite a long time ago. He did make a lot of money off of it. So according to everything that I saw, he's typically credited with making about $2.5 million from the aglet in the 1790s. No, sure, yes. that's today's dollars. Would, no, in today's dollars, that's like $80 million. So, I mean, I guess that would make sense. It is a massively useful product that pretty much everybody on planet Earth uses every day. So I suppose it's possible, but I don't know. We're going to put an asterisk on this one. <laughs> The internet might be lying to us. Yeah. Surely the flugel binder guy didn't make that much money. Robert, it's called an aglet, and I need you to use the correct terminology from now on. I've heard it both ways. <laughs> anyway, so he is right that we are surrounded by objects all day, every day, that somebody invented that probably made that person a lot of money. But inventing in general is not a super successful pathway to wealth. So I found some interesting statistics about this. All you need is a good idea, Carla. All you do need is a brilliant idea. I would add that. And maybe a little bit of luck. So the first Google result that comes up when you look at this is that one between 1% to 5% of all products that are invented actually turn a profit. But if you dig a little bit deeper, I think that number is actually very misleadingly high. And it sounds low already, right? But... It makes a lot of sense to me that it's actually a far smaller percentage than that because so many of the patents that come out are for some like small component of some successful product. So like, for example, if you were to take a laptop computer, there are hundreds of little pieces that go into that and each one could potentially have its own patent because patents are extremely detailed and specific. So you get a patent on like a very, very specific little item, little component item. And if you're a part of like a MacBook, then yeah, your product is going to be really successful. But are you really an inventor if you're the guy who comes up with that like one little component? Hell yeah, you are. If you're the flugelbinder guy, you are. What are you talking about? (laughs) I think if you put all of those things together, you have one successful product, right? But you're probably not getting super, super wealthy making some teeny tiny little cheap part of a laptop computer, right? You're probably turning a profit, but you're not getting like flugelbinder, and by that I mean aglet, (laughs) rich, right? So I think it's misleading to say that like 5% of all inventions are going to strike it rich. I think when people think of inventions, they think of the kind of thing you see on Shark Tank, right? Like a scrub daddy. We're talking about the Segway here. That's what I'm thinking (laughs) about. Or one of those things that goes between your car seat and the console to keep things from falling down it. These are the Shark Tank products that I can think of off the top of my head. But those are the kinds of things that people think of as like, oh, I'm going to be an inventor, come up with something like that and hit it big. But the majority of quote inventions that are doing well are probably some small component 
of a bigger product. So could you invent some small component of a bigger product? Sure. Is that a lot harder to do? Yes. Is it hard to come up with some brilliant invention of any kind? For sure. So I feel like invention is kind of a pipe dream for most people. This makes me think his whole push for money and to be a millionaire makes me think of the book, The Millionaire Next Door. Now, it came out a little bit later than the movie Cocktail. I wonder if it was inspired by it. Probably. Um, Cocktail inspired everything, didn't it? Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. It inspires me daily. Yeah. I think, but anyway, I think The Millionaire Next Door came out in the mid nineties and it talks about the fact that the people that are millionaires are not who you think of. It's not just a bunch of celebrities and business moguls and... It's not the people who invented the post-it note or anything like that. It's just everyday people who have gradually invested their money. They have it in retirement accounts. It's just the, the teacher next door or the engineer or, or just normal folks. Yeah, I totally agree. That's the vast majority of millionaires in America today are these kind of unassuming folks who didn't you know, strike it rich one day. They just slowly accumulated their wealth. So I mean, that's definitely one of the themes of the movie is this desire to get rich quickly. And that is just not a tried and true way of accumulating wealth, right? It just takes time for most people to accumulate it slowly over the years. So the impatience factor is strong with this one. He's he's looking for that get rich quick scheme. Well, he is talking about how he's bartending to go pay for his dreams, right? He's working at night to pay for what he would really like to be his primary day gig. And I think this happens to a lot of people who have big ambitions that may not pay for themselves at the beginning. You, you got to work hard. You got to put in a ton of time to go make enough money to live in order to go find the time to go do the things that are your passions that, that you hope are going to work out. And it's tough. I have to imagine burnout is a really, really big challenge for those kinds of people. Yeah, so many folks have a dream of doing something that's just hard to succeed at, right? You want to write the next great American novel, or you want to start your own business from scratch, and you don't have the cash to do it up front. So you work a normal job or a night job, day job or a night job, right, as the case may be, and it sucks up so much of your energy that you just don't have hardly any left to focus on your dream project. I think that's the tale of like, billions of people probably across the planet. This is just a super common tale of woe, right? And it's a very real one. I'm not trying to minimize it at all, but it's the situation that so many human beings are in. There's not really a magic cure for it, right? As long as you need to eat, as long as you need a roof over your head and some warm clothes on your back, nothing's going to change that. There's, There's no cure for that, right? You have to cover your basic needs The only thing that's ever worked for anybody, I think, is to either just grind it out, overcome the burnout, and continue to put in the hours even when you really don't want to at whatever your side hustle is, or to be super, super frugal and save up as much money as you possibly can to buy yourself some time to focus on your day job. Those are really the only two options that I can see. Now, maybe there's an angel who's going to swoop in and save you, but I wouldn't count on that. Well, that actually is what happened with Doug, right? So Doug and Brian, they reunite. They 
get back together as buddies. They seem almost like frenemies, actually. Totally agree. These are like the OG frenemies. Yeah, but they, they reunite and get together because Doug has met his angel. He's married into some wealth, and he starts a bar club kind of thing, and it appears to be pretty successful. Brian leaves his deal in Jamaica after some troubles and goes back and visits him in New York. They spend an evening together at his club. And they go back to his fancy boat right next to the club that Doug has. And they're, they're talking about life and business. Oh, this is an illusion. I'm on my ass. I haven't got a fuck to piss in. A mm. hundred grand a week. Painful. I should have read some of your sacred books, young Flanagan. The only thing I know about saloons is how to pour whiskey and run my mouth off. I knew nothing about insurance or sales tax or the building code or labor costs or the power company or purchasing or linens everyone with a hand stuck it in my pocket you must make enough to cover that if i'd stuck to what i know best which is almost nothing instead i put all the cash into commodities and blew the fucking lot <laughs> On the margin, buy, cover, buy, cover. I wanted it fast. Man, it's a tough clip to listen to. Yeah, Doug seems so happy with his life. Mm-hmm. And we learned he is very much not, and the movie takes a very dark turn. So, I mean, the main underlying theme here that I think we should address is this urge to just make it all happen so so quickly i mean doug had absolutely everything that he had dreamed of right he won the life lottery he found this angel investor i mean i don't know if he won the life lottery it seemed like he his version of coglin's rules were not that great <laughs> right but he got, the woman he married did not seem like they were they didn't seem happy together well, one iota that's true she does try to cheat on him with tom cruise who's flanagan's i mean who's uh, doug's best friend supposedly so yeah, maybe not the happiest marriage, but he did get exactly what he set out to get, right? He found somebody who took a liking to him, who invested a lot of money in him, who helped him set up the bar that he wanted of his dreams. He had literally all of it and it still wasn't enough for him. And he felt like he just needed more, more, more. So he took the profits that he did have and effectively gambled them away. Yeah, he was doing commodities trading on the margin. So what's that? Like buying uh, pork bellies and uh, barley futures and oil prices, basically guessing on what the price of these commodities is going to be and using loaned money to get leverage. And it didn't work out the way he thought it would. Yeah, so Brutal. apparently he's not just putting his profits that he actually earned into these commodities, whatever they might have been, we don't know, but he's actually using loaned money in addition to that. So he took whatever profits the firm had, gambled them, and then some, and now this little company, actually quite a big company, this bar that he owned. Yeah, it's pull, he said he's pulling in $100,000 a week. Yeah, it's unbelievable. That is more than enough to cover all these expenses that he's laying out for Brian here. And he acknowledges that, right? He's like, yep, would have been if only I hadn't gotten so greedy and basically gambled it all away. So 
this is not the way to handle any any of this, right? But I mean, when you get a big windfall, which is effectively what this is, that is not the way to handle it is by saying, well, this is amazing, but it's not quite good enough. Let me go put it all at risk and see if I can turn it into 5X, 10X, whatever. Well, I think what happened with him is actually not all that uncommon. Maybe the gambling part is, but the fact that he made a bunch of money and had zero idea about some of the consequences of that, what his sales tax obligations were going to be, what he needed to do in order to make sure his building could stay open with the permitting authority. Um, I don't know, legal insurance stuff. There's all kinds of things that are costs that maybe you don't realize when you're a small business, but if you suddenly strike it rich pretty quickly, could sneak up to you. And if you get rid of all your cash that you've made, you know, this profit that you have, you're going to have to cover that at some point. So um, probably a good idea to be pretty conservative with those initial profits. Yeah, um, totally agree. It's just a bad, bad situation that he's gotten himself into here. I will say, I do feel like there's so much hope for him, right? I mean, he has this business that's just an absolute cash cow, it seems to be. And he could probably hire a business manager. Yeah, if he was making that much money, he could have gotten caught up. Yeah, he should have gotten somebody who was a lot better with finances than he was to sit down with him and say, okay, look, here's how far you've gotten into debt. This is what we're going to do about it. Here's the payback schedule that we're going to set up. And you probably need to sell all this beautiful sailboat as much as that hurts that we're sitting on right now, because that's a big chunk of change, right? You need to make some cutbacks in your very lavish lifestyle and you need to figure out a way to pay down this debt quickly. And then look how quickly you can rebuild. If you are able to save, you know, X amount every month and invest it wisely this time, instead of effectively gambling it by doing individual stock picking, then, you know, here's what we can look like in X amount of years. He just needs somebody to sit down and do some math with him, right? Math is the answer, guys. That's the takeaway here. Ooh, I like that. <laughs> I thought you might. Um, I think what's interesting is that he he wanted it fast, but throughout the movie, he's never seemed to be the guy who was all obsessed with making it big the way that Tom Cruise was, right? When we meet him, he's working at TGI Fridays and seems quite content with that. I mean, I don't know if I would call him content at any point throughout this film. He always has like kind of an angry edge to him, but I do think he was much happier just doing his thing behind the bar than he was dealing with all of this business management stuff. Again, I go back to this idea. I think the Jamaica thing was like a perfect setup so for them. Was. Yeah, they should have gone down there and just like lived this relaxed, fun lifestyle where they got to do their favorite thing in the world, which is serve drinks and ham it up and, you know, make a fun experience for the customers and themselves and earn an amazing salary, especially for 1988, doing it along the way. Yeah, they should have earned that money. And if they didn't like living there after a few years, take it back to New York, open up their club, and it all would have worked out fine. I did read that Elizabeth Shue and Tom Cruise spent so much time in the Jamaican waters that were so hot that they actually had like ill health effects. Like they actually got sick. I think Tom Cruise might have passed out at some point from the water being so hot, which really blew my mind. But maybe that was the issue. Maybe they just didn't want to be in the hot Jamaican water. That's it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think you know, Jamaica's going to close down soon. Nobody wants to go there because of their warm water. Everybody's mm-hmm. like, hmm, can I go to Maine or, you know, the, yeah, the so Pacific inviting. Coast somewhere? Yeah. That's where I want to be. Totally. 
Well, the takeaway here is be careful getting in that Jamaican water. Apparently it's too warm and delightful. Yeah, just take care of yourselves, guys. Don't end up like poor Doug getting everything you ever wanted and then hating your life afterwards. It's not a good thing. Yeah, be more like Brian Flanagan. Go after the... Doug was a gambler. I don't think the Jamaica thing was a gamble, but go after this pathway. Be creative. There's a, there's a path to getting where you want to go, and Flanagan got there. I think so, too. All right, guys. Well, we hope you don't watch this movie, but we hope you Seriously, did. just don't go watch it. It is <laughs> such a waste of your time. Just just don't. Yeah, it's a, there's some really good like bad punches thrown in the film. It's, the it, plot is terrible. I mean, mm-hmm. the acting wasn't particularly great. I don't know. I don't know. It's pretty. It's enjoyably bad, Robert. Enjoyably bad. No, it. But it wasn't. <laughs> I don't like good movies. I like terrible movies. You know my taste. It's awful. Don't go watch this anymore. <laughs> All right, everybody. Well, we hope you did enjoy this episode, even if the movie is total crap. And we will catch you next week. Thanks, everyone. Take care. <laughs>